Father, we love you. We give you all the glory and the honor and the praise. Father, I just pray that as we prepare to open your word, that you uh, just watch over us as your children. You grant us uh, understanding, clarification of what you inspired your Apostle Paul to write. Um, Father, I just uh, pray that you give me the words to speak. I pray that you help me present these words uh, with clarity, uh, with understanding, um, with a passion. Father, I pray that you watch over everyone else here this morning as well, that you give them an open mind, an open heart, an open ears to your word, and that we may be receptive to your calling. So, Father, we love you. We give you all the glory and the honor and the praise. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we are continuing our series on the book of Romans this morning, a series that we started a couple months ago. Uh, Paul here, he, he wrote the letter of Romans to the church at Rome. He wanted to preach the gospel message to them in person, but in the meantime, he would write a letter about the gospel message. And so last week uh, when we met, we, we covered uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through chapter 9, verse 5. And what we saw last Last week, uh, Paul described our relationship that we have with God and his son, uh, Christ Jesus. As uh, Paul very clearly demonstrated that one, God is faithful to us. He compared God's uh, faithfulness to us uh, to the faithfulness that Abraham showed to God as he was not even willing to spare his own son. Not only is God faithful to us, but God justifies us. He declares us righteous in the midst uh, of the sin that we commit if we put our faith, a living and active faith in God, uh, that, that's a faith that makes our life look different from, from those around us, then God justifies us. He declares us righteous. And on top of God being faithful to us, on top of God justifying us, he and his son, they have a deep and profound love for us. Paul talked about how nothing can separate us from the love of God and the love of Christ. And so that's what we saw in chapter 8 from the book of Romans. And then we cover just the first five verses of chapter 9. And in chapter 9, Paul shifts gears here a bit. For the next couple of chapters, we're going to be taking a look at how the Jews fit into this bigger picture that God is painting. And it's important for us to know how, uh, what sort of relationship God has with the Jews today as that is what initiated our relationship with God today. The miracles, the wonders, covenants, and blessings that God gave the Jews that all led to our current relationship with God. These different covenants that, that God has established with his people, this, this covenant with, with Abraham and David and Noah, all, all these different covenants, they directly relate to both you and I because of this plan that God originally had with the Israelites and that bled over to you and I as well. And so continuing to deal with the Israelites today, we, we get a bit of a history lesson. Looking back at the Old Testament, we're reading from Romans 9, but throughout uh, this morning's message, we will be alluding to events, uh, characters that lived throughout the Old Testament period, all, all the way back uh, to Abraham. We'll be talking about Abraham today. And so our discussion revolving around God and the Israelites for today is going to focus on two questions. 
Question number one that we're going to take a look at is, is, has God's plan and the Israelites failed? And then question number two that we're going to take a look at is God unjust in his dealing with them. So question number one, has God failed the Israelites? Question number two, is God unjust? And we're going to take a look at how Paul answers these two questions. And so if you have your Bibles, you can open up to the book of Romans. We're picking up in Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 6. And so Paul writes to the church at Rome. He writes, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. We'll stop there for, for a minute. So Paul said, if you rewind from last week, Paul said in verses 4 and 5 that the adoption as children of God, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, the patriarchs, and the Christ, they all belong to the Israelites. God poured out all of these blessings to the Israelites. And then what do the Israelites go and do with these blessings? They go and they have God's Messiah crucified. They, they, they kill the central being in God's plan for the Israelites. They reject him and they have him killed. Now, it's important for us uh, to remember that not all of the Jews had Jesus uh, crucified and rejected him as the Messiah. But there, but there was a portion, and uh, unfortunately a rather large portion, of the Israelites, of the Jews, who rejected God's Messiah. They had him crucified by the Roman government because they could not bear to, to stand hearing the, this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, claiming to be the Christ, the one that God had sent. And so uh, here, with, with, with all that said, uh, Paul then, then brings up the question, uh, you know, ha has the word of God failed because of this, because of these blessings that God has poured out onto the Israelites, and yet the Israelites, they, they crucified God's central being in, in his grand plan that he had for the Israelites. The word, uh, word there, uh, the, the Greek word is logos, and that's the same Greek word that we find in John 1. There's a lot of uh, theological discussions in John 1 uh, revolving around the word logos and, and what it can possibly mean. It, it's a very tricky word as it means a lot more than just word. It can refer to reasoning, motive, a computation, a plan, and much, much more. Th this word really encompasses a lot uh, of different ideas in the Greek language. And so does the fact that God's chosen race crucified his Messiah mean that his word or his plan or his reasoning or his computation, does that mean that it all failed? By no means. By no means. Paul doesn't actually uh, state that here by no means like he has on uh, multiple occasions throughout his letter. But he uses the, these next six verses that we're about to read here in a minute. And he uses these verses to essentially say, by no means does it mean that God's plan had failed. For God made a covenant that Abraham's offspring would inherit the land forever. And I think that that is a picture, that's an image of the coming kingdom, that Abraham's offspring would inherit the kingdom here on earth, and they would inherit for the rest of eternity. And yet, some of Abraham's offspring rejected Jesus as the Christ. And so they will not partake of the kingdom. And so has God's plan failed them? 
God's plan did not fail, as now all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Paul essentially is saying just because you have the blood of Abraham, that does not mean that you are his child and become an heir to the things that God promised he and his children. That is inheriting the, the, the land forever, inheriting the kingdom. Or rather, God chose a select group. We see his election and, and his provision throughout the story of Abraham's descendants. And that's where Paul continues, uh, starting in verse 7, the, the latter part of verse 7. He says, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And so to, to support this claim that not all of the offspring of Abraham are his children, the idea that, that they partake of this heir, this inheritance that belongs to he and his descendants, Paul brings up Isaac and Ishmael. If we were to look back at the story of Abraham, starting in Genesis uh, chapter 12, God told Abraham when he was an old man that he would be a mighty nation and his family would bless all the nations of the earth. The issue for Abraham at this time is Abraham had zero kids, zero kids at an old age. And so how was he going to be a mighty nation and bless all the nations, all the families of the earth with zero offspring? You know, this was a question that, that he, Abraham, and his wife, Sarah, had to consider and contemplate. How is this going to take place? And so some time had passed and Abraham was still without a child. And so his beloved wife, Sarah, told him to sleep with uh, her servant, Hagar. And so he listens to his wife and he sleeps with Hagar and she conceives and gives birth to Ishmael. Ishmael was, was the firstborn son of Abraham that Abraham had with, with the servant, Hagar. And so some more time passed after that. And God tells Abraham in Genesis 18.10 that Sarah, his beloved wife, Sarah, will have a son of her own. And a year later, that is exactly what takes place. For God never fails on his word. Sarah gives birth to a son at 90 years of age. And then God then tells Abraham in Genesis 21, 12, that it's through Isaac that his offspring shall be named. And in Genesis 17, he, God, God uh, informs Abraham that it's through Isaac that God will establish this covenant that he initiated with Abraham. And so it's through Isaac and his offspring. And so God initially made a covenant with Abraham that, that his offspring, they would be a mighty nation, that they would inherit the land forever. And alrighty, we, we, we see that, that God is refining this covenant and, and he's kind of uh, dividing up in half. Where, where now he has two children and already one of the two it's not part uh, of this covenant uh, in direct relation to inheriting the land forever. 
God, God was refining this. He, he, he was uh, clarifying, uh, taking a, a magnifying glass to, to the group of people that God is talking about. So only one of two of Abraham's offspring would take part in this covenant that they would inherit the land for all of eternity. And then on top of this example of Isaac and Ishmael, we see in verse 10, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And so on top of this example of Isaac and Ishmael, we have the example of Jacob and Esau. As we have Isaac, uh, the, the son of Abraham here, and Isaac had a wife uh, by the name of Rebekah. And Rebekah conceived and she gave birth to twins. She had Esau and Jacob. And Esau, he was the older of the twins, which was a very, very important detail um, in, in this uh, certain context and, and culture that we are dealing with. The firstborn male was to be the father of the household after the father died. They, they would be granted this authority and power over the family. But we see uniquely similar to Ishmael and Isaac, uniquely that Jacob, the, the younger one, the younger twin is the one who has given power and authority. And God made this decision while Jacob and Esau were still in Rebekah's womb. Genesis 25, 23 reads, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in, your room, are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And so while Jacob and Esau were yet in the womb of Rebekah, God had this plan. God, God established election that Jacob would be stronger. Jacob would be mightier and his older brother Esau would serve him. It was not because of any works that God chose Jacob over Esau for they hadn't done uh, anything yet um, other uh, than winning that race and being fertile. Um, but God chose Jacob over Esau when they were still in the womb. And now this covenant that God established with Abraham and his offspring, it was further refined, uh, refined again. Where here we have Abraham, God told Abraham that his descendants would, would inherit the land for all of eternity. Abraham has two sons. He has Ishmael and Isaac. And now God is telling Abraham that it's through his son Isaac that they would inherit this land for all of eternity. And then Isaac has two sons, Esau and Jacob. And it's informed that it's through Jacob that, that, that God would establish this covenant that, that Jacob and his descendants would inherit the land for all of eternity. And so with God's covenant with Abraham, we're, we're, we're not talking merely physical descent, but God continues his provision, his choices by the process of selection or election. And so not all of the offspring of Abraham will partake in this covenant as Abraham's beloved children. And so we say all that, 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 that's a lot of detail and what uh, Paul is talking about here through Isaac and Ishmael and Jacob and Esau. And all of that is to say that God's plan had not failed. 
His plan had not failed. For it appears for those offspring of Abraham, the Jews, who rejected God's Messiah, they are no longer regarded as Abraham's children. When we take a look at the inheritance that a children would receive from their lineage. And so the, these offspring, they will not partake in the covenant that God established with Abraham. That his children would inherit the land forever. And so therefore, God's plan had not failed. This is the whole point that, that Paul was supporting. That the children of Abraham are still going to receive the promised land. We just have to redefine who the children of Abraham are. We actually see in another one of Paul's letters in Galatians 3.26, we learn that's you and I. That's through Christ. If we put our faith in Christ, then we are Abraham's offering. We are Abraham's children. We are the ones that are going to, to take part and we're going to take it a part of the heir that, a, that God established with Abraham that we would establish this land for the rest of eternity. And so by no means has God's plan failed in the Israelites. We only get that sense if we don't uh, correctly define and term who exactly Abraham's children are. And so Abraham's children, they are still going to inherit the promised land, just as God promised Abraham. And so God's plan, his reasoning, his computation, it has not, it has not failed, and it will never fail. And so that's the first question. In dealing with the Israelites, has God's plan failed? And the answer to that question is a flat out no. No, God's plan has not failed. For Abraham's children will still inherit the land for all of eternity. We just need to, uh, as Paul here, he, he kind of re-clarifies who the children of Abraham are. And then starting in verse 14, we, we, we see the second main question that we're going to address this morning. In verse 14, Paul writes, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or ex, uh, exertion, but on God who has mercy. And so we have our second question raised, uh, since some of the physical offspring are not going to inherit this land for all of eternity, does that mean that God is unjust? That, that some of this offspring would not inherit the land, yet they, they, they would die uh, for uh, the wages of their sin. D does that make God unjust? Is it unjust for someone to have to pay for their sins with an eternal death? And Paul's answer, he, he says it this time, he says, by no means. By no means is God unjust for this. For God is able to show mercy and compassion on whom he wishes. In the grand scheme of things, we all deserve death. Nothing more, nothing less. You, you might hear some people reply uh, when you ask them, how are you doing? And they'll reply, better than I deserve. And if they have breath in their lungs, that is 100% the truth. They, they are doing better than they deserve. I love uh, that reply, uh, I'm better than I deserve. Because you and I, we deserve death. We, we deserve nothing more, nothing less than death. As the wages of our sin is death. 
And so if everybody, every human being, if every human being deserves death, if God just showed one person mercy from this punishment and everyone else paid their, their sins through this eternal death, that would not be unjust on God's part. Instead, that would be an outpouring of God's mercy and compassion. That God would save one person from this punishment of sin, the wages of sin, which is death. Just one person. And yet, as we see the story progress, that invitation is open to all through Christ Jesus. God is open and willing and wanting to, to extend that mercy. He has extended that mercy and that compassion to everyone. And now it's up to us to accept that mercy and compassion. And so God chooses who he has mercy on and who he does not. And, and it appears consistent with the rest of scripture. God chooses to, to give mercy to those who have a living faith in God and his son, Jesus. And again, a living faith. I, I, I hate to simplify it sometimes saying you, you just need faith, but that's all you need. You, you, you need faith, but if it's not a faith, it's not a belief that, hey, yeah, I believe God. And on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, I'm going to go live the life that I want to live in and seek to please myself. No, when you have a living faith in God, you are seeking to please him on Sunday, on Monday, on Tuesday, on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. You no longer live for yourself, but you live for God. That's what living a life of faith looks like. And so if that's you, God has chosen to give you mercy. And that is an outpouring of God's mercy and compassion where you no longer have to pay the ultimate price for your sin and eternal death where you have no hope of life. And so Paul continues uh, along these same lines. He uses another historical example here in verse 17. He says, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And so if we were to go back to the book of Exodus and read the account of Pharaoh dealing with the Israelites, we, we see that the Israelites, they were living in the land of Egypt for 400 years. And at some point in that time, the relationship between the Israelites and the Egyptians, it grew sour. The, the Israelites, they were serving the Egyptians as slaves and they were treated harsh as slaves. And so the Israelites, God's chosen people, they wanted out of the land of Egypt. And so Pharaoh, the, 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 this man in charge of the nation of Egypt, he's the one who would have power and authority to say whether or not the Israelites could leave. And Pharaoh said, no, by no means, by no means can you guys leave. For, for he, he was a selfish man. He, he saw the fruit that these uh, Israelites were bearing for this nation of Egypt as they were serving them as slaves. And so Pharaoh, he had his chances to let the Israelites go. God sent four plagues on Pharaoh and the people to push him in the direction of letting the Israelites go. And after all four of these really harsh plagues that were sent on Pharaoh and his people, all four times, Pharaoh said, no, you're not leaving. You are not leaving by, by any means necessary. You are not leaving. You are staying here and you are working as our slaves. Then the fifth 
plague comes around. Some of you guys are thinking, well, well there's 10 plagues. Yeah, after, when, when the fifth plague comes around, in Exodus 9, 7, we read that the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. My question is, by whom? Who hardened the heart of Pharaoh? The sixth plague clarifies that for us. After the sixth plague, Exodus chapter 9, verse 12, you can read this on your own. It reads, but the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. And so Pharaoh, he had his chance to spare the Israelites, to, to, to let them leave the land of Egypt, to, to go to the land that, that God was promising them. But he lost that chance after multiple opportunities, where then God used Pharaoh to show his power and might amongst the people, as God was able to deliver 10 plagues or 10 examples of his power and his authority that he has on his creation. He was showing that, hey, I am the God of the heavens and the earth in the midst of the Egyptians who are worshiping all of these other gods, uh, very much a polytheistic religion, serving this God uh, of whatever, X, Y, and Z, and then all these different gods. But God was showing to the Egyptians that, hey, I am he. I am the Lord. I am exerting my power over you and your gods. And God was able to do that because he, God himself, hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Where after the sixth plague, it seems to me it wasn't up to Pharaoh. God made the decision for Pharaoh because Pharaoh had all of these occasions, all of these opportunities in which he could have let the, the Israelites go, but he failed. And after a while, God said, hey, I'm going to use Pharaoh. And I'm going to use him for my glory. I'm going to use him for my glory. It's through Pharaoh and him saying no, that I'm going to show that I am the creator of the heavens here, that I am God of all, and there are no gods beside me. I, I love that story. I don't know why, but, but I love that story uh, of these 10 plagues and God giving Pharaoh chance after chance. And finally, God says, you know what? I'm going to use you, Pharaoh, an evil man. I'm going to use you for my glory and for my honor and my praise. That's how awesome, that, that's how cool our God is. That, that he can use these people who despise him and he can use them for his glory and his honor. And it's up for God to use people in that manner. And Paul uh, continues in, in verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. And so God here, God is the creator of all. He formed the man out of the dust of the earth. He forms and knits us in our mother's womb. And God can use the same material, the same material that he formed you and I, and the same material that, that he formed the most vile uh, people on earth. And he can use the same, the, the, the same material 
And he, can, and he can form some of this material and use it for an honorable use. And he can take some of that same material and, and use it as a dishonorable use. We see this play out and the difference between Abraham and Pharaoh. Where God used Abraham for an honorable use. As Abraham placed his faith in God and God established an everlasting covenant with Abraham and his true children. Whereas Pharaoh, Pharaoh did not put his faith in God. But instead, Pharaoh disobeyed the will of God. And so after Pharaoh had a number of opportunities to put his faith in God and soften his heart, God is the one who hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Thus, God could send six more plagues on the Egyptians to show his power over the gods that the Egyptians worshipped. And so God has that right. God has that privilege. He, he gives everyone that opportunity. If you want to be used uh, in an honorable way for God's glory, or you can be used in a unhonorable, dishonorable way to bring glory to God. But no matter what, everybody is going to bring glory to God. Either God is going to, to exert his authority and his judgment on people, and through that, he's giving glory, or through our obedience, through our faith in him, and living with him forever for the rest of eternity, that brings God glory as well. Either way, it's up to us. We want to be used for an honorable cause or dishonorable uh, means to the end. So Paul says uh, in verse 24 here, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call, this is God speaking, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. This applies directly to you and I, where God originally chose the family of Abraham as his people. He showed his mercy to Abraham and his children, but God has extended that grace to people outside of the physical family of Abraham. God has extended that offer of grace to you and I if we put our faith in him. Where once we, we were not his people, but now we'll be called God's people. Or as God says, my people. And once we were not beloved, but now, as God says, we will be beloved. And once we, we were not God's people, and now God says that you all will be known as sons of the living God, as sons and daughters of the living God. This was all foretold in the book of Hosea, one of the 12 minor prophets, long before uh, God sent his Messiah and, and the eyes of the people that was open as to this offer of grace extended to not just the family of Abraham, but to everyone who puts their faith in God and his son, the Messiah. And so the, the book of Isaiah touches uh, base with the same idea. Uh, the last few verses that we're going to read this morning, uh, chapter 9, verse 27, Paul writes, And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay, and as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah, two cities in which God uh, destroyed. 
And so here, uh, Isaiah touching on, on a similar note of Hosea. Hosea uh, talking about how this offer of grace extended to everybody. And Isaiah talking about the Israelites, that, that the Israelites, only a remnant of them will be saved. And so not all, uh, again, we see not all of the offspring of Abraham will be saved. Not all of them will inherit the land for the rest of eternity. Instead, God is going to carry out his sentence. God is going to carry out his judgment on those and who do not have a faith in him. And through this judgment that God executes, it's going to bring him glory, whether they like it or not. As God is going to show who has all of the power and all of the authority. The Lord will carry out his sentence fully and without delay. As God is going to cleanse the world of its impurities through fire. Much like the process of metal uh, being cleansed through the process of fire, God is going to cleanse the world, the process of fire, the element of fire. And it's going to bring God glory. And so here in this text that we read here, in chapter 9, verses 6 through 29, we see that Paul, he wrote this letter shortly after Jesus radicalized this Jewish faith. I don't think of Christianity as a completely new belief, but it was really Judaism that believed that, that Jesus was the Messiah and that, G, that Jesus radicalized everything with, with this Jewish faith. And so with Jesus radicalizing everything that God has established with the people in the Old Testament, there were a lot of naysayers. There were a lot of people who said, no, 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 this cannot be the case. And they would have uh, both been the Jews and the Gentiles. We, we have both groups of people saying, no, 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 this cannot possibly be the case. And these naysayers, they would have thrown out objections to this faith by making statements like, if this is all true, has the word of God failed? Or is God unjust by not saving all of the Jews? And Paul takes us throughout this piece of scripture, Paul takes us back in the annals of history today to answer these questions. As these are questions that still persist today. When someone looks at the world today and they see how far it has fallen from God, there are countless of people out there asking, if God is true, then hasn't his plan failed? Countless people asking that question. Someone may see the atrocities that are committed on some people in this evil world we live in, and some will ask, is God unjust? Is he unjust because he allows this evil to take place in this world? And the fact that many will not be saved from the consequences of sin, is God unjust because of that? And thank goodness we have these answers that Paul records in chapter 9 as he gives us a ready defense against common questions such as these. As God's plan had not failed and his plan will never fail. For all, all of, uh, of Abraham's children, according to the covenant, according to, to this offspring that God was naming, they will all be saved. They will all partake of the land, of the promised land for the rest of eternity. 
And so God's plan had not failed. Don't put up with that slander. And all the, uh, and all the while, God is not unjust. God is not unjust in how he deals with us as human beings and how he has dealt with the Israelites. If God were to just save one person, one person, that would be an outpouring of his mercy and his compassion. God is not unjust. He is a just God who offers mercy and compassion to everyone. And it's up to us. We make that decision through our faith. And through our faith, we determine if we're going to be an honorable instrument of God's glory or through our lack of faith, through our disobedience, if we're going to be a dishonorable instrument of God's glory. You have that choice. Do you want to be Abraham or do you want to be Pharaoh? The decision is up to you, but either way, God is going to get glory out of you, whether people like it or not. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We will seek to bring God glory in an honorable way and seek to live with him for the rest of eternity. And it's my hope it's my prayer that each and every one of you guys here this morning, you make that decision. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We will be an honorable instrument for God's glory. What a glorious assurance that we have here written in the book of Romans. Let's pray. Father God, I, I thank you for these words that you have inspired Paul to write these words that directly apply to each and every one of us. Father, we give you glory, we give you honor, and we give you praise. Father, I pray that each and every one of us here, we can be honorable instruments of your glory, that we can live a life of faith just as your, your servant Abraham that we can seek to live for you the rest of the days of our life. And so we love you. We thank you for the promise of inheriting that land for the rest of eternity. And until that day, Father, I pray that you watch over us and bless us as a church. It's in Christ's precious and holy name that we pray. Amen.